Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the voluptuous films of the VHS era. Tonight, we're talking about the Russ Meyer masterpiece, Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, welcome to a special Boomer Edition episode of the podcast. This film is about your grandfather's greatest video store nightmare, feminist autonomy. First, we let them vote. Then we let them drive. Now we let them kill. As of this broadcast, you can find 1965's Faster Pussycat Kill Kill on YouTube for free and probably other streaming platforms I honestly didn't really look around this time. And then you, like us, can fully support equal gender representation when it comes to fistfights and sexual harassment. So let me tell you about the tape. This was released by Russ Meyer uh, as part of his video label, which is called Bosom Mania. And I wish I knew more about this. I, I know he released most, if not all, of his films on this label. Um, and they're pretty cool boxes. On the front, it says, filmed in glorious black and blue, super women, belted, buckled, and booted. Russ Meyer's Ode to the Violence in Women. And then here's the back. It says, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill is the story of a new breed of superwomen emerging out of the ruthlessness of our times. We are introduced to three buxom go-go girls, Varla, Rosie, and Billy, wildly dancing the Watusi before the leers, jeers, and lecherous come-ons of their drooling all-male audience. The violence, implicit in the girls' tease, is quickly moved out of the microcosmic bar into the outside world as they literally let go of themselves, embarking on a wild, violent, deadly journey of vengeance on all men. Varla, the outrageously abundant karate master, leader of the pack, breaks the arms and back of one man, runs her Porsche over two others, grinds a fourth, a muscle man, against a wall, and eventually deliberately goes down the path of her own self-destruction, dragging her two buxotic cohorts along with her. I love the description of Varla as outrageously abundant. <laughs> anyway, what do you think of that description? That's pretty accurate. Yeah, I think it's great. I I, I love the descriptions on these. That's that's probably the one of the best box backs you've you've read on this podcast so far. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, so look, before we start uh like getting into the movie, let's talk about let's talk some about the reception of this film. Because when it was released in 1965, it it failed at the box office. It, I think it was his only film that didn't make money. It was slammed as misogynist trash, uh, as exploitive of women. And somewhere along the line, that perception changed. And now if you like look on Rotten Tomatoes, this film is critically beloved. Uh, it is now seen as an early feminist film. It is celebrated. John Waters said 
that it is beyond a doubt the best movie ever made, possibly better than any film that will be made in the future. And uh, and Quentin Tarantino is, is a huge fan of it, um, which I think kind of goes without saying. But what do you think? Do you think that this is exploitive of women or is it a feminist milestone or neither? I mean, that was going to be my question to you to start off this broadcast, because I'm not sure. I don't know enough about Russ to to know what his intentions be when he made this film. So Russ Meyer has explicitly said that none of his films are feminist, that he was not trying to be feminist. But I would consider this film feminist. Like accidentally feminist, I think. But I went into this film thinking it was going to be explicitly feminist. Yeah. About feminine empowerment. And I didn't immediately get those vibes. To me, I think that's, as you were describing, like an afterthought, something the audience put on the film. Because I didn't really get I did not get those vibes watching the film that like that was the director's intention. Yeah, and it wasn't. But and look, there's there's a lot of different conceptions of feminism, right? And I think that in my like academic definition, this film might not fit the bill. But the way I think about this is especially in the 1960s, where else are you going to see a movie where women are all the main characters? They win in all the fights against men. They are independent of men. Like only one is in a relationship with a man and he dies after like five minutes. They have their own future plans, their own ambitions, their own conflict between good and evil. Um, They are shown as just as capable, if not more so than men, always winning the fights. They are engaging in all of the activities that were stereotypically male. So I think that if you are looking, like if you consider feminism to be a film where women are doing all of the things that in the 1960s it would have been deemed unacceptable or at least unordinary for them to do, then I think this film's really groundbreaking. Yeah, even if this film isn't feminist, it does bust open a lot of like stereotypes and feminine tropes of the time. And I think there's a lot of value in that. So I now I don't want to psychoanalyze Russ Meyer too much. I think what is clear, even if he was not trying to be feminist or like advance the cause of women, he seems to worship women, especially women with big breasts. And there has been speculation that uh, I read a lot about how his mother, who had developed Alzheimer's at an early age, was in a living facility and he was very protective of her and spent a lot of time taking care of her. And she apparently was very protective of him and saw him as just a huge success and always sang his praises and was like his biggest defender. And he had this really intimate relationship with her that some have speculated developed into almost a fear of powerful women 
And I mean, he calls this or the box calls this his ode to the violence in women. So I don't know if seeing women as inherently violent, scary and powerful is celebratory or not. I don't know. There's a weird dichotomy here. But nonetheless, I think this is an important movie. And Russ Meyer's filmography, as exploitive as it is, is important for women in cinema. And you can see that the like, can you see how naked of an influence this is on like Teenage Tupelo? Yes, absolutely. And what about like a Tarantino film like Death Proof? The dinner scene in particular has mad Tarantino vibes. Yeah. And I mean, he actually, I think, thanked this movie or thanked Russ Meyer in the credits for Death Proof. And obviously, like the car chases, the male bad guy, the tough violent female heroines like all is lifted straight from this apparently he wanted to make a remake of this but never got it off the ground do you think that this like would a remake of this film have any value or would it just be a waste uh i think it would be just more exploitative something i wanted to ask you because you're probably more versed than well i should say you are more versed in this than i am is uh i guess feminist history right so obviously nowadays in this climate, this film would not be considered feminist, right? I don't know. Why not? Because as we've discussed on a previous episode, um, the, the key to like ab abolishing gender stereotypes or like the importance of gender is to ridicule it, right? To like blur the lines between the two. This is a celebra like a celebration of all things feminine, and thus that would be like the complete opposite of those intentions. Mm. So you've got different strains of feminism that believe different things, right? Some feminist, I think, and I'm not a woman, and I'm not. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't have I don't have a I don't identify as a woman. Um, I don't have like a female studies degree or anything. But my understanding is that some feminists see gender as entirely a social construct. And so the key to the liberation of women is the deconstruction of gender. And right. I think that feeds into what you're talking about. And I think that if we're talking about something like Forbidden Zone, that is absurdist, um, or even Teenage Tupelo to a degree, I think is absurdist, then the aim of those things is to deconstruct. Uh, but on the other hand, I think you have feminists who believe, and especially like right-wing feminists, if there is such a thing. um <laughs> believe, like They believe in like the, the embrace of what makes females unique. And... You've got disagreements over that, right? Like, what is a female trait? But if you look at someone like Camille Paglia, who I think is a fascinating person, disagree with her on almost everything, but super interesting thinker. And um, she considers herself, actually, she identifies as trans in a weird way, like in a not a contemporary way. I'll just leave it at that. Like, look up videos of Camille Paglia discussing her her transgenderism. Um, but 
she considers herself a, a staunch feminist, but she sees a very unique role for women in history and in culture and in society and doesn't think that you can like blur the line between women and men and thinks that's a disservice to women if you try to. So I don't know. You have disagreements. I would not say that that disqualifies this as a feminist work. I think if anything, the fact that you have a, a male writer and director take some of the wind out of the feminist sails here. I mean, he's also kind of like self-injecting his um, his like fetishism into it, right? Yeah, but do you think that that's like? Do you think that's a negative? Well, not all women have giant breasts, so right. But like, if I'm Tarantino, I cast women with big feet. Like, it, it, uh, it, he is trying to accomplish an aesthetic, right? So we could we could get into this, but the aesthetic of this movie is very like 1950s pinup girl, um, combined with like motorcycle imagery or or racing imagery combined with like Western imagery, and so he is borrowing. Uh, visual cues here and, and creating an aesthetic that isn't just fetishistic, like, or at least the fetishism extends beyond the look of the women, if that makes sense. I mean, I, I'm not saying one way or the other. Um, I just don't know if that devalues any possible feminist message you can find in this film. So there is um there is a feminist film critic named B Ruby Rich who really famously slammed this movie when it came out and said that like I'm paraphrasing here but she essentially said that she was mad that she had been subjected to it but then <laughs> but then in the 1990s she watched it again and decided it was a masterpiece and she actually showed it in one of her film festivals that she sponsored. And the way she explained it was that as the context of society changed, the, the meaning of the film changed for her. And it had evolved into a feminist film, even though it did not begin life that way. Or that's how she saw it. So um, before we get to the trailer... I just want to read this. We've been talking about the critical reception of the film. Let me read you a quote from Roger Ebert's review and, and see what that brings up. So he said, what attracts audiences is not sex and not really violence either, but a pop art fantasy image of powerful women filmed with high energy and exaggerated in a way that seems bizarre and unnatural until you realize Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, and Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal play more or less the same characters without the bras, of course. What do you think about that? Oh, God. Um, I mean, I think nowadays Steven Seagal does need a bra, but... <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> I got... I, I, got no. I mean, I could say that I think that that speaks to me because what appeals to me in Russ Meyer's images is not sex in like an erotic way and it's not like the violence. It's 
I like his um his description of a bizarre and unnatural pop art fantasy. It, it's like a construction of or a, a combination of all of these influences and images that come out in such a uniquely Russ Meyer way. Like I can tell within five minutes that I'm watching a Russ Meyer movie. I mean, I could tell it was a Russ Meyer film because I saw his name in the credits. Well, that's fair. Are you familiar with Roger Ebert and Russ Meyer's relationship? No, but even though I haven't seen, I hadn't seen this film until this week, I have definitely heard this name uh, and this title, and I know its reputation. I knew all of that in advance. So and I know that Roger Ebert loved this film. He did, and he and um, Russ Meyer were friends. In fact, he did not review this film when it was first released because he saw it as a conflict of interest. He wrote three or four of Russ Meyer's movies, including Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which I think is Russ Meyer's best film. This would be my second, um, my second favorite. But so they had a close working relationship and a similar sense of humor and my understanding is a similar interest in buxom ladies can't argue with that all right so on that note let's play the trailer and then we'll get into the story if you want one, ladies and gentlemen go go for a wild wild ride with the watusi cats but beware the sweetest kittens have the sharpest claws for your own safety see faster pussycat kill kill Wild women, wild wheels, race the fastest pussy cats, and they'll beat you to death. Superwoman, belted, buckled, and booted. You're wasting yourself on this kid, and hanging it up for nothing. For nothing? It's got nothing to do with the money. She is the money. Jack and Jill, they make the mafia look like brownies. Hey, he's a big one, ain't he? Hmm? Must have swung to his ears. Yeah. 10% of your action be enough for anyone. Too much for one man to handle. And again, you never can tell. You girls a bunch of nudists, or you just, uh, short of clothes? Right now, you're first on my list. And I always try to talk. You've only got one channel. And your channel's busy tuning in outside. You really should be AM and FM. So who do I get to take care of? The muscle man? You got two of everything. And some left over. You did want. You wanted big. Breast or thigh, darling? Why don't you take one of each, son? They uh, both look tender. He's got a big motor to feed. I'll give you a heap of eggs. My motor never runs down, baby. You were too rough the last time. <laughs> All right, here's how it works. Everybody's got to go. You name it, we've got it. Faster pussy cat kills. Delivers tons more than the opposition. Unladylike karate chops. Ungentlemanly haymakers. Spirited gymnastics. Corrective table etiquette. Sandbox jousting. Or a muscle-bound cat wrestling with a roaring sports car that's intent upon squashing him like a grape. Bizarre kidney and chassis rattling chases. And for the first time on the screen, a hay-making, belly-busting, karate-chopping, judo-flipping fight to end them all. Superwoman against man. The prize, life itself. 
Slashing, tackling, gouging, hacking, flipping, belting, smashing, and blasting. Muscle to muscle, bone to bone. For an incredible evening's entertainment, a film so totally satisfying, see Russ Meyer's Faster Pussycat. Kill, kill. I really wonder why this bombed when it first came out, because Russ Meyer's films were, like, all successful. I think that trailer sounds great. Were they all with the same theme? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. All at least insofar as they're all about they're all about big busted women in violent, uh, dramatic or melodramatic perhaps situations. Even if you don't like the content of this movie or the trailer, the writing is on point. Oh, for sure. So let's talk about the writer for a moment. The writer's name is Jackie Moran, and he wrote like five or six of Russ Meyer's films, but he actually started as a child actor. And I wanted to share with you some of the movies he was in. All right, so just listen to these titles. Most of these came out in the 30s and some in the 40s. Uh, I think his big break was as Huckleberry Finn in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. But he made a movie called Mother Carries Chickens. He followed that up with Barefoot Boy, Tomboy, Anne of Windy Poplars, The Old Swimming Hole, The Gang's All Here, Let's Go Collegiate, Henry Aldrich Haunts a House, Andy Hardy's Blonde Trouble, Anyway, you get you get the point. Like the, this is the kind of acting background um, that that he had going into his writing. I don't know if that is of any significance, but I thought it was interesting. Perhaps. But yeah, do you want to let's play the monologue that begins the film that tells us all about the violence in women, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to violence, the word and the act. While violence cloaks itself in a plethora of disguises, its favorite mantle still remains sex. Violence devours all it touches, its voracious appetite rarely fulfilled. Yet violence doesn't only destroy, it creates and molds as well. Let's examine closely then this dangerously evil creation, this new breed encased and contained within the supple skin of woman. The softness is there, the unmistakable smell of female. The surface, shiny and silken. The body yielding yet wanton. But a word of caution, handle with care and don't drop your guard. This rapacious new breed prowls both alone and in packs, operating at any level, any time, anywhere and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. So this is the first time you've seen this. What did you think after that opening? So I went into this film, um, again, thinking it was going to be straight feminist. And uh, this opener, like, kind of immediately started eroding that idea. (laughs) okay it has this very red scare feel to it you know just replaced female with communist and uh it's exactly like uh 
you know, American propaganda from the 50s. I get that, but don't you think it's satirical? Yeah, maybe. See, it all depends on 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 the director and what his intention be. And seeing as this was my first Russ Meyer film, I just didn't know what he was trying to do. Because especially nowadays, there's a lot of things that seem like parody, but they're completely serious. Yeah, that's fair. So but we can't... I don't know... If, I just can't tell. I don't know for sure, but I think he's being... I don't, he says he's not being feminist, but I do think he's being satirical. I think this is supposed to mock um, the archetypal fear mongering that you're talking about. But after this monologue, uh, we start in a go go club, and these girls are dancing, and the audience keeps saying, Go, baby, go. Um, and we hear, awesome uh, music playing the the music in this movie is kind of a mix of like rockabilly surf rock and jazz what what do you think of the score or the soundtrack i'm actually not big on 60 60s aesthetic so uh it, it didn't really do much for me okay yeah i mean i don't this isn't the kind of music that i sit sit at home and listen to but uh, i really liked it as part of the film this was really my biggest struggle not only just watching this film, but a lot of films from the 60s. And, and I realized that the hypocrisy here as we mostly watch films from the 70s and 80s and, a lot, and some of the people probably listening to this are probably looking at that generation as I would look at the 60s, but uh, as far as like length of time. But uh, yeah, there's just something about 60s aesthetics I just can't get into. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. Um, I, I have trouble getting into 2000s aesthetic. And late 90s, like that, just the look, ignoring the content of the film, um, the look bothers me. But we see our, our three go-go dancers, and now they're, they're driving across country. And we've got Varla. She's kind of the leader of the gang. She's played by Tura Satana, who is most famous for this part. But apparently, before she got into acting, she was a go-go dancer, and she started dancing topless when she was 14 and lied about her age. And then there's Rosie. She's played by a, a Quebec actress named Haji, and Haji was also a go-go dancer um, who also lied about her age and started dancing topless when she was 14. And then you've got Billy. And Billy was played by Lori Williams. And to my knowledge, she was not a dancer. She was like, she started out as an actress. But each of these characters, and I'm sure we'll get into this, have such distinct personalities and like roles within the, the dynamic, right? The group dynamic. What did you think of their performances? Like, did you think the acting in this movie was good? Yes. It, especially for our main uh, heroine or heroine villainess. And yeah. I thought the hostage was particularly convincing as far as being straight afraid of the group. Yeah, for sure. So um, the, the hostage is played by Sue Bernard. And I read that she was actually terrified of Tura Satana in real life. And Tura is a lot like 
or my impression is that in real life, she's a lot like the character she's playing. So she said that she had all of this anger that was built up over years at, at men. And she just let all of that anger loose in this performance. And she wanted to create a character that women would want to be like or would emulate. But she was also like trained in karate, I think, and was physically aggressive and strong. So apparently she really scared Sue Bernard. And, and critics have said they think that fed into the believability of the performance. So as, we, as we've been suggesting, Varla is, is kind of our leader, right? And we, at the very beginning, they, they stop in their car. And by stop, I mean they skid to a stop as like dust storms cloud the screen. And one girl, this is Billy. She's the blonde one. Um, she jumps in the water like to go swimming, fully clothed. And she's splashing around. And Varla sends Rosie to go get her. And I really like this exchange. In fact, you want to play it? Hey, Rosie, baby. I got it all warmed up for you. Add this sponge. Soak it up. I'm going to love squeezing you out. I think this is a good time to bring up that Rosie kind of takes all the L's in this film. What do you mean? So she gets into a fight with Billy in the river and essentially loses. Yep. We later find out that Rosie has very serious feelings about Varla. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. What do you think these feelings are? Are uh, they sexual? I, I think they are absolutely everything under the bus. Um, there, there's, okay. a, there's a point where Varla tells the gang, hey, Billy, you need to watch the hostage. Rosie and I are going for a walk. Yeah. And there's, there's probably more than just walking going on. Gotcha. I think that right. was the... the I think that was the, the 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 double entendre, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think most of the dialogue in this movie is double entendre. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of hard to keep up sometimes. Yeah, I actually paused it several times so that I could I could type quotes because every line of dialogue in this movie almost is memorable. Um, but I I got the same feeling as you about Rosie's feelings for varla uh, but i wasn't sure if i was reading too much into it but um Ro rosie's character just doesn't have much going on for her unfortunately as far as the script is concerned but she constantly has to babysit billy she has to clean up after the messes and then in the end she it's done dirty there's no time for her to shine in the script it's just kind of sad because i like her character do you think that the women's hair colors are supposed to be indicative of their personalities? Mm. I didn't really think about it, but blondes are supposed to have more fun, right? Right. I ask because Varla's got black hair and she's definitely the most violent and aggressive and domineering and perhaps evil, for lack of a better word, of these characters. And then you've got Rosie, whose hair is dark, but I don't think it's black. I think it's like dark brown. And she's 
somewhat in the middle stuck between the two and then you've got billy who's blonde and she's the the bubbly fun happy-go-lucky uh does not really care what varla thinks or any authority thinks for that matter i'm just wondering if their hair colors are if if russ is playing into stereotypes here i mean how many dominatrixes do you know without black hair well, I don't know any, but uh, <laughs> I I do recognize the image, right? But I mean, Varla also has black hair because she's half Japanese, right? And then Rosie, I don't know if she's actually Italian or not, but I think black hair is pretty common in Italy. So I, she's from Quebec. So her actress, her accent is actually French. Oh. I don't actually they, don't they reference her being Italian in this film or am I imagining this? I didn't think they did, but I could be wrong. And I don't I don't know that Tura Satana has any Japanese in her. I don't know. She, when she was a child, she was put into a Japanese interim camp. Okay, gotcha. Then that's definitely the case. Her All father right, so immigrated to America. Her mother was a white circus performer and was not allowed in the camp. I watched like a two-minute interview clip. That's the only reason I know. Interesting. What did you think of the dialogue in this film? Because it's very I, distinctive, right? Yeah. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I think even if you don't care about anything else in the film, you have to admit this writing is on point. There's so many memorable one-liners. The trailer, I would assume could have been written by the same guy because it had a lot of this of similar language and and themes associated with it. Like I'm I'm I only watched that trailer once and I still remember the line, you know, the sweetest kittens have the sharpest claws. Yeah, I think some of that some of that is just characteristic of exploitation films in the time during the time period. Like if you watch the trailers that something weird video puts out, they, they almost all sound like that. But I think Russ Meyer is a master of it. And he probably, I mean, his films, I'm sure, influenced that movement to begin with. Like, I, I know in a lot of ways, I think John Waters is the one that transcended that kind of dialogue. And it, Russ Meyer was a huge influence on him. But going past the one-liners, as we discussed earlier, that dinner scene, it's also about the banter between the characters. It's very well done. It feels natural, yet also stylistic. Yeah, so we're going to get there. But after the the swimming fight, the girls are are drag racing and playing chicken in their cars in the desert. And a couple shows up, a man and a woman, and they want to run timing tests in their car. So the guy's going to drive and the girl is going to time him so that he can try to beat a record. And you can tell that, for lack of a better description, in the parlance of the time, uh, they're square, right? Like they're, they're the typical heterosexual suburban couple. And the girl even asks the go-go dancers if they'd like a soft drink and i love this line rosie says we don't like nothing soft everything we touch is hard 
And as they're talking, they're like go-go dancing out in the desert. They're talking about trying to beat the the time. And Varla says, I don't try anything. I just do it. I don't beat clocks, just people. And so it, eventually this settles into the girls are challenging the guy to a race. So what do you think of the way this race is shot? Like it's filmed. Do you think it's it's good? Is it exciting? Is it what do you think? Well, first, we kind of skipped over it, but I'm pretty sure chicken like, you know, the game with <laughs> where two automobiles drive towards each other and one has to drive off because they're afraid of death. Right. You know, the good old TikTok challenge of the day. <laughs> I think there's a lot of cultural significance at the time with using chicken with a reckless generation that doesn't care about um you know consequences or doesn't consider consequences i I just feel like there was something there that maybe we just can't immediately see and just sort of be like yeah whatever chicken i mean i think it says a lot about the characters right and the guy the guy who comes tommy i think his name is he's only interested in racing a timer and so we can see that he does have a lot of caution that the go-go dancers don't. Yeah, this this man is the spirit of modern day speed running. <laughs> yeah, so I really love the way this scene is shot. I love that sometimes the camera is observing the cars from a distance and sometimes it's in the cars, but it's not just on the girls' faces. It's from crazy perspectives like down near the gas pedal, like looking up at them. And it really makes the whole scene feel chaotic and overwhelming, kind of. Like, it's sensory overload to be in this scene. So I I don't really buy into... um that whole like American fascination with sports cars and automobiles and stuff. So none of these sequences do anything for me. And all I could think about was uh, just, they're not actually driving in any of these shots. They're all the, I think all the cameras are angled upward. So all you can see is sky because the car isn't actually moving. It just have a couple people rocketed on the outside while, you know, the, the character is just like frantically steering but they're not really steering anything yeah i mean there's a there's a combination right like sometimes we do see the cars moving but it could be stunt drivers um maybe it's it's obvious because um maybe this version was is touched up it's not as uh dirty or grainy as it might have originally been shown but it just looks really obvious that they're not driving to me yeah i mean i think that I think that a lot of the the fights too in this movie, it's obvious stunt work. Like you you can see through the craft, but in a way that adds to the aesthetic of the movie that I like. Like it's kind of like watching a play, right? You know it's a set, but you've got to suspend disbelief and accept the aesthetics of the set as real. Or you know, like I really love the the musical version of Little Shop of Horrors with Rick Moranis, and that entire movie is like all of the sets are obviously sets. They they've got two dimensional props on them. Like it's just part of the aesthetic of the movie that I can accept and kind of enjoy. 
so the they're racing and the guy loses control of his car and his girlfriend Linda wants to leave but Varla won't allow it she takes the guy's timer his watch away from Linda and she says he has to win it back and I really like this the guy comes up to talk to them and he says I don't know what the point of this is and Varla says the point is no return and you've reached it <laughs> so they fight and Varla kills him like it looks like she breaks his back right actually it took me a while to figure out he's actually dead i thought she just like dislocated both his shoulders and left him in the desert <laughs> no i i think that uh he dies like right away oh, no he's he's dead but it just wasn't immediately clear to me because i don't think you can break someone's back like that oh i don't know how realistic it is oh but... like not at all i mean you could conceivably yank someone's shoulders out of their sockets though that's what i thought the crack was supposed to be got it yeah this is our first pitiful male male character in the film right <laughs> like this is going to be very indicative of the men going forward and it's kind of nice because normally it's women in these positions getting like you know hack and slashed by some dude in a mask exactly the the girl linda is played by sue bernard she's in another movie i really like called the killing kind that we're going to do on this show at some point but the go-go dancers take her as a hostage or as a they kidnap her i i don't do you think they have a plan for her at this point or are they just like making sure their witness is under control I originally thought they were going to try to indoctrinate her into the group. Yeah, I kind of like, I mean, that's what happens in Teenage Tupelo, right? Um, I kind of suspected that as well, but no, that's not how it pans out. So they go to a gas station and there's a guy at the gas station that Billy is really enamored with. And the gas station attendant tells us that this guy is called the vegetable because he's a nut he he's he's not mentally there um and he is helping around his father who they refer to as a cripple because he's in a wheelchair the gas station attendant says the whole family is kind of like hermits like they live out in the middle of nowhere but they're supposedly really rich and so this gets the girl's attention not only their sexual attention but their desire for the money Right. So they decide they're going to go see this family and use Linda as a cover. They're going to say that Linda's boyfriend was killed in a racing accident and she went crazy and her family hired the go-go dancers to find her and bring her back home. This cover story is preposterous, right? I mean, is it any more preposterous than anything else that's actually happening in this film? No, and I mean, even one of, I can't remember which of the girls, but someone says that's uh, something like, that's that's ridiculous enough to be true. Something like that. Like, And, and at one point they say that the, the father who they tell this story to would have believed any story they told. That might just be them uh, being dismissive about men. Yeah, well, they're nothing if not confident. Right. But 
their their story isn't really bought hook line and sinker i think there is definitely some suspicion as to why they're really there yeah um is it we're getting to that they go out to this guy's land and it's full of like broken down cars and equipment looks like an oil pump or something but we meet the vegetable and then his dad who's just referred to as the old man uh he's not given a name and then the other brother's name is kirk and Varla overhears this conversation where the old man is saying that he's afraid Kirk is just waiting for him to die to get his money and that he might even kill him. And he tells the vegetable, we won't let him. And then I was kind of confused by this exchange. The vegetable says, what do you want me to do? Get another girl? And the dad says, you were too rough last time. You're going to arouse the authorities. What do they know about hurting and pain? We're paying them back. Each woman is a payment. So what are they talking about here? Like I can, I can it's surmise, right? But I don't know what the hurting women thing has to do with worry, worrying about Kirk. I only watched this film once and there might be something I missed, but the reason why the old man is disabled is because he tried to help. I mean, we're going, we're assuming his story is true. Right. He tried to help a woman or a young girl who fell on a train platform or onto railroad tracks. Right. And in the process of saving her, or at least attempting to save her, I'm not even sure if he was successful. Yeah, we don't know. Was injured himself. And the gist I get is that he is taking out this uh, this injury on all women. They're right. all the same. Because, oh, she was saved, because I remember now. she After he, he helped her, she just got on the train and left. Right, yeah. So part of it is he just hates all women because she didn't seem to be thankful for what he sacrificed. And there is a scene later on where I'm not sure if I if I got this right, but it seemed like both the old the old man was going to have his vegetable son help him sexually batter the hostage near the end of the film. And so I got the feeling that what they're talking about now in this scene was foreshadowing to what was happening later in the film. All right. So I get all that. I'm just not sure what it has to do with Kirk wanting the money. But, oh. you know, it's just it's this natural conversation segue, right? Going to casually killing your son to... I guess. Yeah. I mean, as much as I love the dialogue in this movie, there are a lot of like non sequiturs and really quick topic changes. Hmm. But this is where or somewhere around here is where the old man says they let them. This is women vote, smoke and drive, even put them in pants. And what do you get? A Democrat for president. He's just betraying all his. Uh his prejudices at once now this this has to be a parody right yeah i mean well his character yeah yeah but 
at some point he and Varla are talking and he says to the vegetable, I think, she's a cold one, all right. More stallion than mare. Too much for one man to handle. But who knows? She might gentle down real nice for the right holder. So you can see through these kinds of statements, like what his impression of these women is. Varla starts to be kind of sweet to Linda, but she tells Rosie that it's because if they can keep her thinking that she has a chance, uh, she'll be more docile, right? And she'll go along with the plan. See, that's that's what I was thinking, like they were going to indoctrinate her and keep her around. But it isn't like even 20 minutes later that I that notion is completely thrown out the window. Well, it might be partly because of the way Linda responds to everything, right? I mean, maybe if she had responded more favorably, they would have. Yes, thank you for freeing me from my um, traditionally restrictive heterosexual relationship that was accepted by society. <laughs> I mean, maybe. maybe. All right. <laughs> At one point, I like this. The, the old man comes to invite them all to lunch, and he says... Are you girls a bunch of nudists, or are you just short of clothes? But he doesn't seem to mind their appearance. No, I don't, I don't think anybody minds. Once they're away, once the old man and the vegetable are away from the girls, he says that fate threw us this package, and all we gotta do is untie those pretty ribbons. That youngin is tender as a cottontail. We've got to save her. Is, but he like wants her for himself, right? Like, what does he think is going to happen? Does he think that she's going to like stay and be his sexual plaything? Thank you for saving me, Mister. How can I re ever repay you? Yeah, I guess. I guess that's what he's hoping for. Spoiler alert: That's not how it turns out. And no, but but Billy is really into the vegetable. And she asks him to show her how he stays so strong. And they go inside. And my impression was that they were going to have sex. But instead, the vegetable just starts, like, working out. <laughs> I, mean, that's just, I think this is just, like, to show that he really does not have the normal faculties of what a... Typical warm-blooded strongman should have. But this relationship between Billy and the vegetable is one of my favorite things about this film. Normally, you would have this situation where big strong guy is trying to emotionally manipulate some blonde bimbo who has no idea what's going on into, into like whatever romantic endeavors he has planned but this it's just now that's just totally flipped around i really enjoy all the dialogue yeah my favorite line here is while she's watching him make or work out she says i never took anatomy but it looks like you got two of everything and some left over she seems on the brink of seducing him, but there's a scream and Billy goes running outside to see what's happened. And the old man is on the floor and he says that that Linda escaped, that she ran off. And so the implication here is he tried something, right? Like he tried to touch her or something. 
we see her running and crying um and kirk picks her up this is the other brother but he doesn't she doesn't know that he is the old man's son this is kind of an odd scene he like they're standing in the desert and she is panicked and saying like we've got to go we've got to go they're trying to kill me and he wants her to tell him like the whole story before he lets her get in the truck like he wants a whole explanation (laughs) i didn't really think about that but you're right yeah what did you think of his character like in some ways kirk is like the most normal person in the movie right yeah i mean he's also the most boring maybe he is supposed to represent like the average male viewer of this film maybe because like he also kind of falls for farless stick if yeah only for a moment yes we th- i found that interesting so we're gonna get there so of course he just takes um linda back to the house and she's freaking out once she realizes that he lives there but Anyway, Varla gets her back. And this is where Kirk is like, all right, tell me what is going on. And the old man repeats the whole story that Varla told him. And then we see the vegetable making out with Billy in the desert. So I guess her seduction shtick worked. I mean, she got it. but they're interrupted because a train goes by and he does not like this he freaks out and says that the old man does not like trains um and then he just runs off so this is speaking to what you were saying earlier about the old man getting injured by a train it's also a penis joke (laughs) right (laughs) and then we get another beautiful double entendre here because billy returns and varla says you were a long time coming and and billy says you're telling me <laughs> i thought that made me chuckle the old man is like grabbing a bottle of whiskey and kirk says it's a little early for that and the old man says the train's running late and kirk's like what does that have to do with anything and and he says well there's nothing on time today He says, all trains do is huff and puff and belt smoke and kill and maim. And at this point, we still don't know why he's so afraid of trains, right? No, we have not heard the story yet. But somehow they shift from trains to talking about the vegetable. And the old man says, are you proud to have that animal for kin? You're making me realize something a lot darker about this dude's backstory how so so or you want to wait wait until after you play the scene and then we'll talk about it brother brother to what you proud to have that animal for kin what he is now you manufactured what he could be is your son yeah he's my seedling i can't deny that but he ain't no son to me. He's a, a piece of mutton, a blob of flesh. He's no use to no one. Well, you seem to find him useful. Well, he's an instrument. He's a means. He's for using in things that humans can't do. I won't do. All right, have it any way you want. I'm not for talking anymore. So we have a baby situation here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> 
So you want to explain like how so? Yeah, uh, maybe this is too dark. But again, jumping to the end of the film, you have a scene where the old man and the vegetable are with the hostage in the desert. I just got to call her by her name. Let's humanize her a little bit. Linda. So we're with Linda in the desert. And what ha- what is about to happen is interrupted. But what I think is about to happen is the old man was rendered impotent from his accident. But he still wants to be involved with Linda. And so he has his son ready to perform his intentions via proxy. Yeah, that's the implication I got. I also got the implication that the vegetable is not nearly as brain dead as everyone makes him seem, that a lot of that is the dad's doing. And I think... Seem uh, pretty tame in comparison. Yeah, I I mean we don't we don't get the full scope of this right, but the the brother Kirk does say like you manufactured him this way, right? And and the dad calls him an instrument uh, for using things human for using for things that humans can't do is the way he puts it. So I, you are right, I think, that he plans to live vicariously through him in some ways. That's an elegant way to put it. So the next scene is the, is the lunch scene. So you were singing the praises of this earlier. Well, why don't you talk about it? Gosh, uh, almost right from the get-go, if you've ever seen a Tarantino film, you will be right at home. It plays out much the same way where you have a lot of double entendres, a lot of one-liners, sexual innuendos everywhere, and there's a lot of character development sandwiched in between. There's a part where Varla seductively nibbles on a corn cob, which I think is the first time I've ever seen that sec- that vegetable sexualized in such a way. That's that's exactly what I wrote in my notes. I said, Varla is eating corn seductively. Never seen that before. Oh, yeah, girl, show me that typewriter style. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, she kind of pulls it off. Uh, She doesn't need much help. Let's let's just throw that out there. (laughs) All right, yeah. At some point, though, oh, I liked this line. The dad is talking to um, Linda. And he says, you better eat something. All that running you did earlier, you might want to run again. And he says it very menacingly. We haven't really talked about the old man who is played by Stuart Lancaster, who I really don't know from anything, but he's been in like bit parts of a lot of stuff I've seen. What did you think of, of his performance? Well, for starters, on IMDb, he's one of the few actors in this film that actually has a picture (laughs) yeah he went on i mean he was in edward scissorhands batman returns um naked gun uh, but i don't know that i could recall who he was in those films i'm assuming he's just one of those guys that was like a professional background character there's plenty of those in hollywood you know the guys you see them you never remember their name 
but you know what they've been in. Yeah, but here, uh, here he really has um, a prominent role. I think he's great. I think there's a great performance. You know, you mentioned earlier about how um, you have to kind of look at this as a stage play, which I, I'll be honest, I did not <laughs> when I was watching this film. Uh, but he does really have that stage acting presence. Like rewatching the scene where he was talking about his son. It it really shows. Yeah, I mean, he kind of chews up the scenery, but at the same time, he's got a lot of subtle emotions going on. He also just makes a good villain, uh, I think. he. I think he does a lot with his face and like looking menacing, but he's also comically over the top. I really love how, this is an aside, but later on when the action scenes are starting, if he gets out of his chair, he'll just like crawl through the desert. He doesn't <laughs> let the chair stop him. No. He kind of reminds me of uh, the one character in Breaking Bad that had to communicate with the bell. Like I thought the same thing. Yeah, aesthetically, yeah. that was where my mind went to. Yeah, no. I, I even uh, I even thought for a moment, like, I wonder if these actors are related. Not because they're both in wheelchairs, but they do similar things with their faces like communicating yes. with their eyes. Mm -hmm. Linda eventually like goes hysterical and starts telling everyone that Varla killed her fiance and that she's crazy. And the, the table gets increasingly um, wild. I like vegetable though. He just eats. Yeah. No, he's, he's big growing boy needs his vegetables, needs his protein. And we should mention that, um, both Billy and the dad are getting turned up as fuck throughout this whole scene. Yes, uh, quite so. And when the dad gets kind of wasted, he gets emotional. And he says something like, this house knows what killing can do. Because when Vegetable was born, he was too big and he killed, or that's the way his, the, the dad says it, that he killed his mother. Um, but she obviously died during childbirth. And he's sitting right there, but the dad is saying, I can't tell him or explain, but I hate him. You know, he's my, my blood and my son, but I still hate him. Uh, I, this is the moment where the old man really turned into like a three-dimensional character for me. Like, I thought it really humanized him. Is humanized the right word? You know, yeah, he's like, it makes him awful and villainous, but it gives him an underlying motivation and emotional backstory that means he's not just like a cardboard villain, right? Like, he he's a three-dimensional person. I guess that's what I mean. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I don't know if he necessarily needed this, but it's not unwelcome. Oh, no, I'm very thankful for it. But Varla tells Kirk that she wants to talk to him outside. Um, and by talk to him outside, she really means that she wants to like make out with him. Oh, I like this. So while they're outside, Billy and Rosie are talking. And 
Rosie is complaining about Billy drinking, and Billy says it feels good. That's why I do things. I can turn myself on a dozen different ways, but you, you've only got one channel, and your channel is busy tuning in outside. You really should be AM and FM. I love that line. Yeah, I, I did too. And actually, as much as I love that line, what I was really paying attention to on screen is Linda. The acting during this conversation is great. She's just watching Billy with like a range of emotions going through her face that I read. Maybe I was projecting too much, but I was reading that she was alternating between being scared and kind of admiring her. And Varla and Kirk are outside making out. At some point, they start talking about his dad. And he says, you hate him, but you're like him in most ways. You're a beautiful animal, and I'm weak, and I want you. This is fantastic. Like, it's melodramatic. It's kind of soap opera-ish. But it's also, like, influenced by, you know, like, pop like pulp fiction novels and uh in film noir like there's so many different influences on this dialogue but it creates a a dialogue that's just very russ meyer and that you can see how it influenced like john waters and how it influenced tarantino and and others so there's a line here in this dialogue oh maybe you're gonna go over it i'll just wait till you're done no 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 go ahead before they're about to uh, take things to the next level, Kirk is a little um, a little cautious, right? Because on one hand, she's a murderer, but she's also a thick Asian. So like, what am I supposed to do here? It's like a, a simple farm man, right? Uh, and he he's actually ashamed about wanting her carnally. And she responds, what's weak about wanting? Everyone wants. Yeah. And so she takes him into the barn to have sex. And Rosie is watching them and she is not happy. Yeah, this, she does not want to see that hot, itchy, hay sex. Uh, well, this is, I mean, I think she wants to be down on that hay with Varla. Uh, but not, not with Kirk, though. No. No. <laughs> she shows no interest in Kirk. So while this is happening, Billy passes out from drinking and Linda is able to escape. So the old man and the vegetable go after her and their car and Rosie gets her car and Varla goes to see what's going on. And Varla tells Rosie to go sober Billy up while she and Kirk go look for Linda but see, the old man is trying to get to Linda first because he wants her for himself. I, I'm not sure why why he was trying to get to her first. So man, Rosie gets cucked and then has to go babysit drunken Billy and somehow sober her up. Which I guess it works through the um, the wonders of Hollywood magic. And screenwriting. <laughs> yeah, Billy sobers up real fast. At some point here, the old man says that 
Linda looks just like the girl he saved when he got hurt. Oh, wait, that, that reminds me. Kirk, you, so you asked why Kirk, why Kirk was looking for Linda? No, why the old man wants to get to Linda before the go-go dancers do. Because he wants to brutalize her. <laughs> you think in that moment he does? Yeah, I mean, he seems to be always ready, right? See, it. maybe I was reading too much into it, but I had the feeling that the old man had a longer-term plan where like, he planned to keep her at the house for the long-term, and it wasn't about like a single moment. Possibly, but whether it's for one moment or a lifetime, uh, either way, you don't want it to happen. What I was thinking is that he was afraid that Varlo would punish her and he wanted to save her so that unlike the girl on the train that just got on the train and left, he would have this thankful uh, girl he saved at his home with him to stay with him. But it gets a little bit more violent than that once... uh... Once he actually catches up. Yeah. So the vegetable is going after Linda and the old man is just crawling through the sand. It's like, it's so ridiculous, but, but I liked it. I thought it was fun. The, the vegetable is, I guess the dad wants the vegetable to rape Linda, but he can't do it. He, he breaks into sobs and he tells her that he didn't mean to. And that's when Kirk and Varla show up and the old man is like, damn it. Like I lost my chance. Yeah, his tool broke on him. And it's remorseful, right? Yeah. And we hear Varla and Kirk talking right before this point. And Varla is trying to talk Kirk into killing off his dad for the money. And after this almost rape scene, Varla tells Kirk something like, we could have made it. And Kirk says, I don't think so. Do you think that Varla is suggesting that they could have been like a couple, like partners? No, I think she was just going to ultimately use him for his money and then ditch. But, you know, Kirk here with the post-nut clarity. See, I'm not sure like Kirk or, or the interest in Kirk to some degree almost humanized Varla for me. Like it almost revealed a weakness that that she actually had an interest in this guy. Now nah, buy that for a minute. Well, the old man is lying, but he tells Kirk that he threw the car keys away, so they'll have to walk. And Kirk says to Varla, he calls her a very sick girl, and she says, "I like this." She says, "I looked all right an hour ago." Or do people look different to you when they're horizontal? But um, the three go-go dancers basically have a fight. Varla and Rosie want to kill everyone and take the money, but Billy doesn't. Um, And she says, I ain't sleeping good as is, and a girl's got to have those good eight hours. Uh, And Varla says, you want to have a permanent rest then? I thought that was a really great exchange too. Well, Billy tries to call her bluff. Yeah, she starts to march off and Varla throws a knife into her back. 
And this yeah, in traditional 60s style, she dies on the spot. I know. I was going to say this is like the most lethal knife in history because it's only like four inches long. It's not a big knife. And uh, it's it doesn't land in the spine or anything. It's just like in a random spot in the back. And then, yeah, she's dead within moments. And Varla wants Rosie to run the old man over. Um, and the vegetable is crying because Billy is dead. You see the vegetable, I guess Linda too, but the vegetable is is the second most emotional and uh, unstable person in this movie. So Rosie does it. She hits the old man with the car. This was the only scene in the movie that I thought the stunt work was really bad. Like I couldn't even tell that he got hit. He's suddenly just on the ground and his wheelchair falls over. I, I just don't think they wanted to destroy the wheelchair. Maybe it was a rental. They had to return it at the end of the shoot. Maybe, but once it it has fallen over, we see that it was full of money. And I think Varla says something like, that's where he hid his stash. And then I think that in as much as they cared about the money, they don't really go after it or anything. I guess there's more important things going on. No, um... Varla collects the money while Rosie is retrieving her knife. All right. Okay. But my attention was on what happens when she's retrieving the knife because her and the vegetable are talking about she wants the vegetable to pull it out. Um, And I think that he says in the most foreseeable death scene ever. Yeah. But before that, he's talking about um, Billy, and I think he says she doesn't laugh anymore. She doesn't smile and laugh anymore, something like that. Yeah, it's hella sad. Yeah. Um, But then, yeah, you're right. Uh, Predictable death oncoming. uh, He stabs Rosie. Here's the knife. Yeah, he's like, I'll give you your knife. And then he stabs her. This is where Rosie went through this whole film just miserable and goes out miserable. Yeah, and the vegetable shows... See, this is where like he shows some verbal wit here, right? Elementary, but he's like, you know, I'll give you your knife. And then after he stabs her, he's like, I'll let you keep it. So he doesn't seem that dumb to me. Yeah, he, he's pretty far gone. I guess. But Varla hits him with the car. This does look really good. I thought this stunt looked awesome. Like, he really, it looks like he really gets hit by the car and goes flying. He doesn't die, but she tries to crush him against the wall, like sandwich him between the front of the car and the wall. And he actually manages to push the car back using his arms. This is the most ridiculous scene in the film. I mean, it's a really tiny car. Dude, that that vehicle is at least two tons. Like this man, this man was like, uh, is like Clark Kent. Like <laughs> his parents found him in his little Kryptonian escape pod and has just been raised here his entire life. And now he's holding the car back. Well, not only does he hold it back, but he manages to burn out the motor. So Varla has to take his truck instead to chase after Linda and Kirk. 
Kirk gets the idea that they can run on the railroad tracks, but Varla just pulls onto them and there's a chase sequence on the tracks, but she finally backs them up against a cliff and gets out and then her and Kirk start to fight. And this is where we see her karate training in action. Did you think the fighting in the movie looked real? No, it's that stereotypical 60s Hollywood fighting, but you can tell that she does have technique and she's doing all of her own stunts. Right. Yeah, it it definitely doesn't look like they're, you know, really hurting one another. It it is that Hollywood-esque kind of like I was saying earlier that there's a there's a layer of of unreality. You know, you've got to suspend disbelief. But yeah, I think it's fun. Um, and and she's clearly knows how to do things and um, is the physical equal of the men, which I think is what's important in this part. So they seem to, be, if anything, Varla seems to be winning this fight. But Linda, finally showing agency, she gets in the truck and rams it into Varla. And despite the fact that she's showing agency and taking control, she's crying hysterically the whole time. She hey, says, I can't. This is way better than the child. My, <laughs> okay. better. What, what is the comparison? Why are you comparing? Annalise crying in that shack for oh, yeah. 30 minutes without doing anything. Yeah, well, the, the girl who plays Linda is a much better actor that too right um but she's saying i killed her like she was an animal like she was nothing and then i like uh kirk's response is she was nothing she wasn't human <laughs> and then they just leave her in the desert uh roll credits so what did you think of this as a conclusion i don't think you really need to have a more thorough epilogue what are you going to do show everyone getting christian burials at the end well so here at the end of the movie what do you think do you think this movie has a point is there a message is there a theme or is it just pulp entertainment my gut instinct is pulp entertainment yeah i think so that's definitely the intention as discussed earlier i I think it's very easy to pull like feminist ideology and support from the script but it was definitely not intended yeah i mean like i said i think what is intended is the worship of women and showing women in powerful roles and if russ meyer wants to say that's not feminist then like whatever but it it does do something that other movies during the time period were not doing. So we've gone long. Let's get into uh, final thoughts and reviews. Oh, why don't you give this a rating out of four? All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to break this one down into a list. So um, cons: not a fan of the music. I don't care about the cars. Uh, <laughs> I don't like the '50s '60s hokey fight scenes, and. We kind of skipped over it, but the man versus car scene is really absurd. But the pros, you have a lot of awesome one-liners, great character banter, um, and unforgettable, sexy, scary heroine villain. And uh, apparently, um, I just appreciate reverse twists on, on chauvinist pig tropes. 
So this is a little bizarre because I'm fondly reminiscing about this film. I liked discussing it. I appreciate many aspects of the of the film. So I'm torn because I don't think I actually enjoyed watching it as much as all that. And I'm uncertain why, but perhaps I am weak in spirit and cannot rise above my distaste of 60s aesthetics, specifically the music. I, I seek forgiveness from our patron, St. Roger Ebert, who is always objective in his reviews. But it's not you, pussycat, it's me. Although this film isn't for me, I, I do understand the appeal, and it's seemingly venerated cult status. So I'm going to go with the coward score of two stars. Uh, it is probably a much better film than this, but for me, actually watching it, I I've just maybe didn't enjoy it as much as, as most people would. I think that's totally fair. Um, I do really enjoy this movie, but I think that one, I think that it gets better with repeat viewings. At least that's been the case for me. Um, and two, I think that I've got to be in a very particular mindset to want to watch a Russ Meyer film. When I'm watching it, I definitely enjoy it, but I wouldn't want to watch one every day. It's its its own unique flavor um, that I've just got to be in the right frame of mind for. But with that said, I think that historically this film is important. Uh, even though it bombed when it came out, um, it proved to be influential in both film criticism and in the filmmakers that it inspired and Russ Meyer's other work has inspired. I think it's historically important because of its portrayal of women, giving women the ability to play meaty roles and dynamic roles and get to do things independent of men and do action scenes in a time when no other directors were doing this. Uh, I love when filmmakers have their own aesthetic and their own, like, I like when it's hugely stylistic and obvious who the filmmaker is. And that's certainly how Russ Meyer is. Um, I can recognize his dialogue immediately. I can recognize his visuals immediately. Um, I can recognize his penchant for big breasts and as single-minded as it might be. Um, I like the fact that he's he's all in. Like, he's not he's not trying to hide anything or be subtle about anything. He's just like, here it is. Here's what I like to see. If you don't like it too bad. I mean, I mean, so far as he even named his VHS company bosom mania. <laughs> I, I, I like that. Um, that forthrightness. I think the acting in this movie is fantastic. Um, it's not realistic acting. Like they're not trying to be real people. They're trying to be like sexualized cartoon characters. And insofar as they are that, I think that the acting and the writing and the dialogue are fantastic. I love the music in this movie. Um, like I said, it's not like I don't sit home and listen to rockabilly or surf rock very much, but um, in the world of this movie, it fits really well and I enjoy it. I think there's some ethical ambivalence here insofar as 
there are pros and cons to having a message in your movie that women are somehow inherently violent and frightening. But for all the positive things this film does, I can overlook that. I give this three and a half. Three and a half stars. I mean, is it really that this film is trying to portray all women as being violent? Or is it just trying to say that, hey, look out, women have the capacity for violence? I don't know. But that monologue at the very beginning of the film uh, about welcome to violence and tonight violence is is in women or whatever that says, um, that's what it seems to suggest to me. But anyway, that's it um, for Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. If you um, like this movie and you're new to Russ Meyer, uh, I would definitely check out Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. I think that um, that's his most accessible movie um, and the one that I enjoy the mo- most, as insane as it is. And you get to see what a Roger, screen, uh, a Roger Ebert screenplay is like, which is interesting. Next week, we are going to do a film that we have already talked some about on this cast, and that is The Witch Who Came From the Sea. Uh, This is a really odd film, very dark and disturbing, ostensibly an exploitation film, but so much more, like, I've only seen this film once and I saw it for the first time recently. So I'm actually excited to have Leland watch it and get somebody else's take on it um, and talk about it. I think there's a lot to talk about there. Um, I think it's available to screen pretty much anywhere. Uh, The Unicorn VHS tape is ridiculously expensive if you can find it. Uh, But this is an easy movie to watch. So everyone should check that out and join us next week. Um, Until then, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares, where I post everything that we do. Leland, do you have any last words? Thank you for your continued support. Yes, thank you to everybody uh, for still listening to us um, after, what is this, episode 14? 18. 18, wow. Episode 18. Yeah, I didn't think we'd go that long. Um, Well... I hoped so, but I wasn't sure. So you all who are still listening have boosted my confidence. Uh, If this was your first episode, um, go check out our other episodes. And hopefully um, this is some nice free entertainment for you. All right. So with all that said, uh, we will catch you next week with The Witch Who Came From the Sea. And until then, everyone have a great week. We'll talk to you later. Bye.
Ha 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 